0: This is the Danger Close podcast. Beyond the books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my friend, Doctor David Kilcullen. David is a former Australian Army officer who managed to get a PhD in political anthropology along the way. He was the advisor on counterinsurgency to Condoleezza Rice at the State Department and to David Petraeus during the surge. In Iraq. Today, he runs a strategic uh, advisory firm and has written five books. Uh, And if you've been paying attention, you will notice his influence in each and every one of my novels, in particular, this last one, In the Devil's Hand. His latest novel, The Dragons and the Snakes, which I read back in early 2020, really helped lay a lot of that foundation for what I was writing in The Devil's Hand. So uh, without further ado, my friend, Dr. David Kilcullen. David Kocolin, thank you so much for jumping on. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. And you know what? The secret of this podcast, the why I started it, is so that we could have this conversation because we haven't talked to each other in so long. So you Very essentially well. forced me uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with all the different little uh, apps and stuff like that that we have to communicate through when you're traveling all around the world doing your, doing your thing. I had to actually start a podcast so we could catch up. So that, that's why I'm doing the whole thing.
1: I think the last time we had a drink together, you were still a Navy SEAL. That was, right. and, yeah, uh, that was a while ago, and what's happened since then?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been busy. It's been busy, and I think the last time we were actually the last time we were talking uh, seriously about things was when I was going down. I was in South Africa with uh, with a mutual friend of ours, and mm-hmm. I was going down there to help train up an anti poaching unit. Right. Um, tra- they were transitioning over to M4s and Glocks, which are two platforms that I have some experience with. and uh, And you were talking to him about something, and so we got to got to catch up a little bit there. Oh, but yeah. uh, then it was off to the. After the races with yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> but you you really haven't looked back, mate. I mean, it's a testament to your discipline and and the fact that people are interested in what you have to say. I you know, it's fantastic. Well, I've certainly appreciated I, have to say, I honestly have no idea how you write fiction, man. It's so much harder than uh, nonfiction. And I've always looked up to guys that can actually pull that together. Cause you know, as I always say, nonfiction only has to be true, but fiction has to be believable, right? Which is, is true. This is
0: true. And it's getting harder and harder to do that because if you were to write about some of the things that are actually happening today, 10 years ago, people would think it was science fiction. People wouldn't believe it. You would have been asking your reader to suspend their disbelief too many times. Um, I think in fiction, you get away with it once. If you're writing like political thriller type things, you can get away with it once they'll take that leap with you. But if you continue to do it throughout a whole book four or five times, they're not yeah. going to stick with you. So, yeah, that's totally um, but today true. there's so much crazy over the last year, year and a half. So much has happened. Yeah. that I mean, uh,
1: yeah. If you just wrote a straight history of 2020 and tried to pass it off as fiction, a lot of people would have gone, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just barely believable that all that stuff would have happened in one year. You know?
0: I know but, it's crazy. Yeah. It's Pretty crazy. Quick. And then, so in, in, uh, I did a quick prep for this because I've been reading your stuff for so long before we knew each other, before we were friends, I knew who you were. I was reading all your stuff. Every chance I got with, uh, uh, the, uh, Books, articles, online, anything I could find, I was trying to just devouring it as a combat leader because right. I thought that was my responsibility um, as a leader to be able to make those decisions either under fire or even in garrison in preparation um, for uh, impacting the battlefield. Uh, that's what I owed my guys. I owed my guys. Mm-hmm. I had to be a student of history, student of insurgencies, of counterinsurgencies, of terrorism, uh, warfare in general. But uh, but I grabbed the books off the shelf before I. Uh, before we jumped on here and I, I opened this one because I was going to do I did a little skim. So here I have all, all my right. all my notes and stuff. There's a, right. like all this right. one, uh, Accidental Gorilla. I opened this one and it's like all yellow. The whole thing is highlighted. So all it's right. like I, I might not, I shouldn't have even used a highlighter because the, uh, right. the whole thing is highlighted in
1: there. I think, I think you were reading that one when you were in the Philippines. Right? That's that right. You start, exactly. Uh, you, you were in the middle of that very interesting deployment and uh hooked up on the on the basis of that yeah that was exactly right because that was the first
0: time I really had time to take a take a breath and kind of process what I'd been doing for the previous nine years essentially Um, which was what any large city SWAT team does every night in uh in Los Angeles in Albuquerque Mm -hmm. in Chicago wherever serving warrants type thing kicking indoors, grabbing somebody bringing them out trying to uh, get intelligence from them in order to, to go get somebody else um and essentially these different uh you know, IED networks and and all the rest of it, they looked like what I would had seen in movies of um of police uh in the United States putting together crime families or something like right. that. Yeah, know, right. Who's connected like to who, of who's law. talking to yeah. who, all of that yeah. stuff. So like in the, the Philippines was think. the first time where I could actually study this, take a breath and say, hey you know, I could do this forever in Kabul, in Missoul, in Baghdad, in Ramadi, wherever. Um, and I could continue to do this for 30, 40, 50 years. That's the first time that I really took a breath and dove into this study. And that's exactly when you published Accidental Gorilla*. So yeah, yeah. that whole thing is is all you, but I wanted to, so I, I, I opened this and I read page 16, Dragons and the Snakes, which is your, your latest book. Yeah. And as I was reading through, I'm like, oh my goodness. I completely forgot that I got the almost exact wording from for the start of the Devil's Hand, which is very academic in nature,
1: right. from this because okay. I did
0: so much research for this. Uh, this right. was this was there was a lot of academic research involved in in the Devil's Hand. The other ones uh, not nearly as much. But I didn't have any background really in uh, bioweapons or that sort of thing when I started writing this. But mm-hmm. I read this and uh, talking about the authorization for the use of military force. Uh, which I have in the novel. And then I read this part. um, 19 years later, this 275-word resolution passed by Congress only seven days after 9-11 and with only two uh, abstentions in the Senate and a single nay in the House remains the sole legal basis for an ongoing worldwide uh, forever war. So anyway, I took almost that exact wording and put Mm -hmm. it in the beginning of the devil's head and oh. I didn't realize with all my that I, where I had got it until about an hour ago when I just pulled this off the shelf. Uh so thank you. For well, that. you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> and uh <laughs> for oh. people who have read all your novels and all mine, um they will find even in the in in all the other novels, but right here, yeah, right 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 here. 7 days after 9/11 Congress passed it. <laughs> so almost exactly word for word. Yeah. Oh, uh, so yeah. what that's that's happened? So thank you so much yeah, for that. Um, but I remember uh, I went to the re- resolution, I copied and pasted it, I did the word count, I made sure, you know, because I because everybody can fact check you these days, and there's no yeah, uh, you totally. know, there's no barriers. So uh, so thank you so much for that, and for people that have read both of our our stuff, so much of what I've learned from you ends up in the pages of my novels because my protagonist has a background similar to mine, and that just comes across, and so a lot of me is in that character, and because of uh, how much respect I have for you, and how much I've learned
1: from you over
0: the years—that uh, just comes across in the novel. Well, so I appreciate uh,
1: you saying that, man. But I—I I, I give you two two areas of kudos. One is you know you are the door kicker with the experience doing that. I, I obviously did different stuff, um, but also like seriously the ability to take dry nonfiction facts and weave them into a you know a historically accurate but still. Uh, engaging narrative, like very few people can do that. You know, every nonfiction author thinks they can write a novel and every publisher's like, dude, no. <laughs> and so, you know, kudos to you, man. I, and uh, I'm a great fan of your, of your books. And I often sort of chuckle when I, and I, I read something. I'm like, oh, I, 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 I remember that incident in a slightly non-fictionalized form. Yeah,
0: that's it. Yeah, there's a few of them in that first one. Cross-cut targeting made it into the, uh, to the first novel uh, yeah. in a sentence or two in there. So, uh, yeah, I guess there's so much of what I learned from you became a part of me that a lot of times it's almost like I'm so far behind I think I'm first i heard that that terminology, like like you're out there in the front, and some of these things I've been studying for so long that I almost think that I came up with them. When in fact, um, uh, you know, they're they're all you. So so thank you for well, that. I'm gonna
1: get, I'm gonna give you a blanket endorsement right now to use any of my stuff that you want. Oh. Uh, no, need, <laughs> no need to uh, you know put in a footnote or
0: anything. Oh, no, so you're true. in the back. You're in all the acknowledgments, of course, and, and all the rest of it. Um, right. But before we get to uh, dragons and the snakes and, and all the rest of this stuff. Um, for people that might not be uh, familiar with your with your background how did you get up to the the point well of dragons and snakes but really up to um the the 28 articles like how where did you yeah. uh, from australian military up through uh through that time frame 2006 2007 time frame um what was that path like for you
1: yeah well you know the great question for those that are on in our business you know i i um I, to explain my accent right i'm an american now that i Australian by background, and um, was in the Australian military. And the way that it worked back in the 80s when I graduated from the academy was that everyone had to do an Asian language. And um, I did my sort of language test and tested out fairly high. So I just finished my um, my platoon command and the uh, army's like, right, you're going to language school. I was like, oh, Jesus. So I ended up going to language school. I did Indonesian, um, ended up being trained to do, Um, what we call security force assistance or foreign internal defense. Uh, So working with a foreign military that has a a threat um, and helping them to sort of uh, get a grip of it. And so I went out as a young captain in the 90s all over Indonesia working with uh, the Indonesians. And at that point, it was pretty quiet. It was a military dictatorship at that point. Um, We had yet to see the democratization that's been really amazing in Indonesia in the last 20 years or so. Uh, but I became pretty quickly aware that there was this entire um, Islamic extremist separatist organisation that had existed in the 50s and 60s and arguably still existed in Indonesia that had never really been written about, um, uh, you know, in, in the academic world. And I was, had just started my PhD on political anthropology, so I sort of pitched the army on I'd like to do this study of Islamic extremism and terrorist insurgency And the army was like, no, you know, why are you doing that? It's, you know, it's irrelevant, you know, it's post-Cold War environment. Under what possible circumstances would we ever fight, you know, Islamic insurgents? So (laughs) anyway, eventually I talked them into it and they they let me do it, but they never gave me a day off or a a dollar. I just did it all on my own time while, you know, commanding a company and I was S3 of a, like, equivalent to a ranger battalion and doing all that stuff. Um, But then 9-11 happened and uh, immediately, uh, people probably remember just after 9-11, there was a big spike of activity in Indonesia. And in October of 2002, there was a really big uh, terrorist bombing on the island of Bali that actually killed more Australians p- proportionally by population than 9-11 uh, killed Americans. And it really engaged the government very heavily in, okay, we've got to do something about this. And everyone's like, does anyone know anything about these guys? And then the army were like, "Oh yeah, we we have a guy, right?" Well, so first, where's that guy we told not to do that yeah, PhD they're, program? They're like, "Suddenly, I was like, they're you know the son <laughs> of their president, uh genius." And I, look, I'm fine with that. So I w- I went off. Um, I was about to command a, a battalion, but got sort of sidetracked and ended up in the intelligence community, uh, helping to respond to the Bali bombing. But it was also early days of Afghanistan and Iraq. And after about a year or so. I wrote a paper essentially saying, look, the Iraq war is killing us, right? It's making more terrorists than we can kill. Uh, it's generating this kind of cascading set of effects globally that are just making things a lot worse. And we must get a grip of Iraq or everything else is just pointless. And a guy called Paul Wolfowitz, who was the deputy secretary of defense in the Pentagon at the time, read that and sort of wrote to the Aussies and said, Hey, can we, can we borrow Dave to come and help, you know, work on the, there's this thing called the QDR, the Quadrennial Defence Review. Every four years, um, the Pentagon has to put together a sort of strategic review for Congress. So they brought me over for that. Um, I ended up getting seconded to the US State Department, Counterterrorism Bureau. From there, I ended up being um, working on the counterinsurgency manual, which people were building at the time, um, and a general called David Petraeus, who was in charge of the um, Command Staff College out at Leavenworth, was writing that, And then he got the gig to command uh, multinational force Iraq and asked the Aussies if he could have me to come with him. And I ended up sort of in there uh, advising around the surge in 2007. Um, And, you know, I I often get misdescribed as Petraeus's advisor, right? Petraeus didn't need any advice on counterinsurgency. I mean, he literally wrote the book on it. Um, My main job was to be out on the ground with the Iraqi units and our guys and Basically, sort of like an on-field coaching job, helping people figure out, okay, this is how we've been doing it. This is the new construct, and how do we, how do we change what we're doing? And about halfway through that was when the awakening happened, right? The Sahwa, where the uh, Iraqi Sunni tribes, and you remember this from your own time there, right, turned against uh, Al-Qaeda. And, you know, people like to put a lot of credit on the counterinsurgency doctrine and the extra troops and all that. That's all true, but the real decisive thing in Iraq was, was the awakening. And if that hadn't happened, we, we would, would have been defeated there, you know, 15 years ago. Of course, we managed to snatch uh, success from the jaws of defeat and then, you know, lost it again in a year or two when we decided to pull out and just let it all go to go to hell. Um, and then we had to do it all over again with ISIS. So anyway, I, that's how I got into what I'm doing now. I left the government in 2010, uh, started a firm called Cordiera that does this stuff in Africa and uh Latin America and Southeast Asia. And uh we do a lot of other stuff too. But that's my sort of core expertise is helping people deal with um, let's say complex social problems while getting shot at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably a good summary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's amazing. What's always uh, impressed me so much about about you is that you can you have that tactical level experience and you have that strategic level experience. Uh and you can Speak at both levels, and very few people can do that. Some people at that yeah. talk at that strategic level, the people that they're talking to at the tactical level know they've never done anything down there. Know that their their touch point down here was like 1987 exercise, uh, you know, in yeah. Germany
1: or something like that. And you, yeah, and there's I, a lot of stuff where people have something that briefs well on PowerPoint, but it doesn't necessarily work on the ground. Yeah. I, I like to say reality is tactical, right? So you can be as strategic as you like, but unless you understand what it looks like, how it works. You know, what a guy's, what's going through a guy's head as he's kicking that door down, um, then you're possibly harming people by coming up with these ideas that, you know, seem like a good idea, but don't necessarily work in practice. So I always like to, f- you know, field test everything with guys like you, but others that, that do the business, you know. Um, and I like to do the business myself whenever I can, yeah. because that's the only way you stay current, you know.
0: Yeah. No, you're amazing. And what I love about these is that every now and again, you give a glimpse of some of those really cool personal stories that you have, uh, that I know about because we've talked, but, uh, but they're not, there's not an autobiography type thing yet. And there's, that would be amazing at some point because there's so many touch points in all of these where I'm like, Oh, I want to know more about that. Or I remember when we talked about that over drinks and that would make a great story. There's some great lessons there. But, uh, so were the 28, uh, articles was, was that, um, so here's the uh, counterinsurgency field manual yeah, right field here. Manual. Were those born of of that of this? Because this was maybe, no. what was the? Uh, I mean, I mean, they um, all came from you. But was this too stru- too strategic in nature for that person that's out there that's just has a few minutes before he goes out on patrol and someone hands him this book in 2007?
1: So like, well, yeah, how's this I supposed to? They, yeah, I think they put the 28 articles in is it, in his appendix to that, but it had already been published by the Marine Corps Review, um, and. Um, in fact, that counterinsurgency manual, the first one, FM three twenty four of two thousand six, was a real group effort of a lot of um, super smart people, and I was sort of involved in it and I helped with it, but you know I wasn't one of the major authors because I was busy, you know, in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's certainly, you know, it's worth a read even now because uh, it captures a lot of the, the core ideas. But no, twenty eight articles came about because of a really smart couple of Marine Corps captains um i'm sitting in my office in the state department one day and the counterterrorism bureau there's a knock on the door and these two guys come in one's a guy called by the name of scott cuomo um there's a couple others uh and they say look we're instructing out at quantico and we've seen all of this sort of higher level strategic stuff about um you know how to achieve various high level goals and counterinsurgency but what it doesn't give you is the concrete detail of like how to do it mm-hmm. um And would you be willing to kind of, you know, give us some pointers on that? And as it happened, I had to go to a meeting that afternoon in the Pentagon. And uh, the guy I was supposed to meet stood me up. He had another meeting come up. You know, that happens. So I ended up sitting in a Starbucks near the Pentagon with like two hours to kill. I didn't want to go back to the State Department, you know. So I pulled out a little black notebook and I just started writing down all my sort of key points that I would have told those Marine captains about how to think about what to do. And I organized it in sort of chronological order. Happened to be twenty eight points, and for people in my business, there's a famous article by T. E. Lawrence called 27. "The Twenty Seven Articles," right? Which is his description of how to do guerrilla warfare against the Turks in World War One. And I'm like, oh, I have twenty eight. So I said, I'm <laughs> I like, well, win. The articles, a little homage to to uh, to T. Lawrence. Not that I'd ever be in his category, but you know, just oh. to kind of you know uh, link it. So a lot of guys read 27, 27, 27 articles by. Lawrence with 28 articles by me. And I'm like, well, I'm honored to be in the same company. But, yeah. you know, he actually, uh, you know, had a, a an amazing history in World War I. But I, I'd argue you should read probably both, in, uh, you know, together. Um, but, yeah, that's how it came about. And I, I went home from that Starbucks and I basically drank about half a bottle of a that night, stayed up till about 2 in the morning, just wrote it up, you know, on my computer and sent it out. And originally it was an email. Um, and it just sort of went around, like sort of yeah. samused out around the Army captains and and, uh, and around the Marine Corps. And then I get this call from the Marine Corps review and they're like, hey, can you can you write that up as an article? So I ended up putting it out, I guess, April 06, maybe. So about a year and a bit before the um, the coin manual came yeah. out and about a year before the search. And I think um, it's funny because you put a lot of work into books, right? But sometimes it's the thing that you chunk out, you know, in one night yeah. with a, half a bottle of whiskey that, that, is most resonant and part of it is because it's practical right it's like here's what you do first right Mm -hmm. then do this think about this you know try to kind of give people a a how-to guide but I also tried to caveat it to say like this is what I know from the campaigns I've done uh when you get out on the ground that this is only ever going to be a very rough guide and you got to figure it out for yourself right and that that's a message that I think has resonated with a lot of people over the
0: years. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's hard I to remember.
1: Remember years ago now. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know it's crazy how time is flying. And here it, it's uh, captured here in uh in Um right there. Oh, I think you can yeah, see it right there. But um, yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah, all well, my books. I don't know what's going I, on. I
1: have to, to get my publisher to send you a card of whiskey.
0: <laughs> Please. Hey, I won't turn it down. <laughs> uh, but uh, this one, I, so I put these on my uh, the professional reading list that I was asked to put together before I left the, the military for the Naval Special Warfare Center. I don't know if they actually implemented it or not, um, but, uh, but I put all those books that had uh, impacted me and the ones that I'd recommended over the years uh, to junior officers to chiefs, to anybody that expressed an interest, um, and, uh, and turn that into this professional reading list right here. And all, um, your books, of course, a couple of them weren't out then when I was back in the military, but, uh, but all these books are required reading as far as I'm concerned for any student. Of warfare, whether they're uh, going to be a practitioner of that, or they're going to be a policymaker, or they're going to be sending out a tweet uh, on a, on the, on this subject yeah. that's going to be read by one person or ten million people doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. the, these are absolutely fantastic right here. And jumping back to David Petraeus um, really quickly, there was something that happened in I think it was Afghanistan in 2011 where uh, you got your hands on a uh, an Al Qaeda uh, after action report that described you as Petraeus's uh, Australian mercenary.
1: That's right. It was actually, it was actually a report from Iraq. Okay. Um, people were sort of passing it around. And it's interesting, right? Because we think about terrorists as being, you know, on the one hand, you think of them as sort of depraved psychos, which is actually not true most of the time. And then we also tend to think of them as kind of 10 feet tall evil geniuses. And the truth is, you know, they, what, what they are is a learning organization. It's continually adapting uh, to a really hostile environment and people that don't adapt fast enough die. So, you know, it's sort of combat Darwinism, right? And the the guys we're fighting 20 years into the war on terrorism, by definition, the smart and the lucky and the cunning and the adaptive guys are still out there and the stupid and unlucky are, are dead. So they put a lot of effort into adaptation and lessons learned, much as a professional military organization does and basically one of my analysts found this thing is like hey look at this and basically it was an after action review by a group in Iraq about why they lost during the surge and talking about the different elements that made it hard for them to operate and then recommending some ideas for the afghan uh, taliban and others about how to react to the us surge in afghanistan which was about to happen so it's a classic example of you know, cross-pollination of information amongst different groups um, and about, you know, how really the the common feature here is that they're learning, they're adapting all the time, this stuff never stays still. And, again, back to your earlier point, that's why you have to be in the field all the time and stay current because, you know, stuff that you did a week ago or two weeks ago um, is out of date. And by definition, if something works once, it's a lot less likely to work, you know, a second or a third or a tenth time. Um, and yeah, they, they described me as Petraeus as Australian mercenary. I'm like, no, eh, you know, I, I'll take that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I like that one.
1: Always what the enemy says about you. That's, that's, most honest. That's pretty cool. We should
0: frame that one. I think it was, I think it was an unclassified cause it was, they just put that out yeah, there on their no, channel, So That's, yeah, a, that's a good one to frame. I love it. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, but huh. yeah, I found that also that, um, obviously it's important to be anything, whether it's military or business, whatever, to be a, a learning organization. And on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, the enemy could adapt a little quicker than we could because we are still, even in special operations, we were a bureaucracy. Um, yeah. And they could- You know, I
1: remember, just to tell a brief story, during the Battle of Amaria, which is in June of 2007 in, in downtown Baghdad, great cavalry officer by the name of Dale Kuhl had uh, the district of Amaria- And as part of that battle, he ended up working with local guys who were fighting al-Qaeda. And one of the big issues, as you know, was figuring out how to tell the guys that were working with us from, you know, the other Iraqis who are also in civilian clothes, also carrying the same weapons, fighting in the same area. So one of these units got, um, you know, those... uh, reflective sashes that army guys wear when they go running. Yeah. Yes. I heard that so, you don't
0: have to do that on some basis anymore. I actually wrote that into my last novel. Really? <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah. I know. But I, yeah, point being, I know those reflective vests. Yeah. Yes.
1: And uh, so they basically cut them up into little reflective squares mm-hmm. and they got them to stick them on their, their backs. So they had like a um, uh, some means of sort of telling them apart. This happened at like maybe 8 p.m. By dawn the next day, all the Al-Qaeda guys had them too. Right wow. Within one night, they found out about it, figured out what was going on, fabricated their own, got them out there, and before the sun comes up, Al-Qaeda's doing it too. You know That's how quick they, they were at adapting. Um, and then I would argue, Islamic state, you know, successor to AQI, is probably the most resilient and adaptive organization that I've ever encountered, you know, um, friendly or enemy, right? um, And without in any way seeking to copy their methods. We could learn a lot from the way that they adapt, you know, because um, as you said, we're slow, we're dinosaurs to their mammals, you know?
0: Yep. no, exactly. I mean, they can pivot on a dime, it seems, um, particularly yeah. Yeah. Uh, IED technology. As soon as we counter that, they're figuring out a way around it. That's that game of constant adaptation. And we're both looking for, for gaps in each other's defenses. We're both looking to capitalize on momentum um, and continually adapt faster, obviously. Than,
1: uh, and you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, you've got great power actors like China and Russia. And Iran, to some extent, looking at what we're doing and going, yeah, I'll take some of that. I'll take some of that. And they're copying from our methods, but also copying from our adversaries and sort of sitting to one side, letting us fight each other for the last 20 years and you know, exploiting that.
0: That and that became the basis for my fourth novel, uh, "What the Enemy Has Learned by Watching Us on the Field yeah. of Battle for the Last Twenty Years," and um, totally. and I always wanted to write something about that because I thought a lot about that during my time in uniform. I continued to think about that as a citizen, as an as an author. Um, what the enemy is learning by watching, because we've been essentially playing poker for the last twenty years here, and they've been looking at our cards, seeing how we play those cards. Taking notes, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, uh, and yep. that's that's a long period of time to, to be able to do that. Um, yep. And in the novel, I look at distinctly different periods i go back to about 1979 to i go 1953 briefly but 79 to 2001 2001 onward and i have some older Iranian, characters that yeah. talking about iran right. yep yeah. and uh, right. well, i had some characters that are older that grew up during that time in the 80s uh and early 90s and hey, what did they learn during that time frame and then what did they learn during that next uh period is when we we're talking about about yeah. terrorism that that Different paradigm there. What do they learn in those two distinctly different periods? Um, and that brings, yeah, to dragons and the snakes. I mean, that's uh yeah. that's yeah. and 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 I whole point being I wanted to always write about that. So it was in my wheelhouse. And then I talked to somebody in uh in Argentina in 2017 uh who mentioned uh, a few things about security pre-9-11 in airports and post-9-11 in airports.
1: And I started mm-hmm. thinking
0: about those things. And then I figure, okay, now is the time to to sit down and write this novel. And then that's right about the time that this came out. So early twenty twenty, mm-hmm. uh Dragons and the Snakes comes out and I'm reading it. And that really framed how I wanted to explore those themes in this fourth novel. Um, mm-hmm. and that's all due to
1: that's all due to you from uh from Well the oh, not of- just me, man. I mean, I know you get out and talk to a lot of people and you you have a lot of your own field research too, but I'm happy to contribute Yeah. <laughs>
0: A little bit, yeah. Well, no, yeah. it was fantastic. It it really brought all that together for me as I started down the path of of writing this. But um, when you say the dragons and the snakes, for uh, for those who haven't read the the book, what are you what are you talking about?
1: Well, it's actually not my phrase. It comes from Jim Woolsey, who was uh, uh, President Clinton's first CIA director, and uh, when he was doing his confirmation hearing. So, if you want to be the head of an agency um, and you get nominated by the president you have to be um, uh, approved by the Senate and you go through a whole process for that. And when Woolsey was giving his um, confirmation testimony in February of 1993, so about maybe 15 months after the, the end of the Cold War, uh, one of the people on the, on the committee said, well, how do you see the next 10 years of sort of post-Cold War environment? And he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union. But now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. So by dragon, he means, you know, peer adversary, great power states with nuclear weapons, you know, like the Soviet Union. By dragons, he he goes on to talk about basically weak states, failing states and non-state actors. So when I decided to write this book, the first person that I spoke to was actually Jim Woolsey. And I met with him a couple of times as I was writing the book. Um, He's a fabulous guy. Um, very knowledgeable on all kinds of different ranges of threats, Um, uh, not shy about expressing his point of view, you know, um, not in any way politically correct. You know, it's very, very direct. And we had a great conversation about basically how we screwed it up, right, and how um, ideas that were pretty obvious to them in the 1990s, we somehow lost that during the war on terror. And basically the argument of the book is for 10 years after the Cold War, from 91 to 2001, we focused on snakes, right? Um, weak states, non-state actors, failing states—you know, Rwanda, Somalia, Liberia—you know, all the stuff we did in the 1990s. After 9/11, we narrowed that focus to just one snake—you know, international jihadist terrorism—and we had such a narrow focus that everybody else was able to adapt around us and do all that learning that we've just been talking about. Today, we're in like a post wolzian environment where the dragons are back china russia you know to some extent iran and north korea but really china and russia are back in a great power um competition i hear people saying we should avoid getting into a cold war with the chinese dude we are already in a cold war with the chinese we've been in one they've been in one with us for years we just have have just started to wake up um and so what i wanted to show is how china russia all of the terrorist organizations iran the north koreans how they've learned in that period since um, since Wolsey. So basically, I have a chapter where I talk a lot about non-state actors and how they learn, and I have a theory chapter, you know, talking about application of a bunch of ideas from evolutionary theory, right, to how people adapt in a, in a warfighting environment. Um, and then I have a big long chapter on Russia, a big one on China, and shorter ones on uh, uh, on on Iran and North Korea. For the Russia chapter. I actually went up to the Arctic border between Norway and Russia. That and was fascinating.
0: Like yeah. I wanted to take that and just do another yeah. book on that. I feel like I should not read the, when they come out, read them cover to cover. I should just pick a chapter and then start my next novel. Like just get yeah. the, get a spark or something to explore and, and start that next chapter. But that was fascinating. Yeah. What, so what inspired you to go, to go up there as part of this research? Was there something that stuck so, out?
1: Yeah, so well, a couple of things. One, I love the Norwegians. I don't know if you work with them much, but I haven't, you know, but I always wanted to. I missed that part. Yeah, they're just fantastic. And um, for an army their size of a nation their size, I'd say no one beats them in terms of quality. And particularly their special forces are just outstanding. And um, the Norwegians played a really big role in a number of the campaigns, obviously since 9-11. I knew a bunch of guys um, from Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, and I'd been invited to go to Oslo. Um, to speak at a conference talking about the future of uh, potential conflict with the Russians. And I was like, I'll come, and you don't have to pay me, of course, but um, I'll do a little contra deal. Take me up to the Russian border. There's a special unit up there. Uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, elves running around at the border of Mordor, uh, you know, hanging out in the forest with the eye of Sauron looking at them. Um, this tiny little unit, it's about 600 people, very elite, You're about 400 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It's all forest and swamp and tundra. uh, And um, on the other side is basically the entire Russian Arctic, you know, northern fleet, plus about three divisions of airborne troops and motor rifle troops. It's a huge amount of Russian firepower uh, on the other side of this tiny little border. And half of it is um, water, so a little small boat type Mm -hmm. uh, river, and half of it is forest. So I managed to... Go out with these guys for a few days and um, talk to them. They, they hide in these little ops, keep keeping an eye on the Russians that are moving around by small boat. Um, and I, I managed to, you know, ride about half the border on quad bike uh, in the in the forest, right up to the edge of the of the border, like a cu- couple of feet from from Russia. What's astounding when you see that is how much gear the Russians have up there, right? In terms of like electronic attack, um, uh, sophisticated aircraft. There's a whole nuclear submarine bastion up there, but they've also got like an entire brigade of VDV, so airborne troops that can like drop in with, with weapons. They got like assault hovercraft. There's all this stuff out there, um, and, and but also when you look at it, you realise that their border, even 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, is not designed to keep people out. It's designed to keep people in. Mm. Um, so uh, it's a very interesting sort of verdict on you know modern Russia when you think about it. Uh, but the interesting thing about that area is there's a lot of Russian speaking Norwegians. There are a lot of Norwegians who actually fought with the Russians against the Germans in World War II. Um, you know, people from, if you've ever been to Norway, bring your own alcohol because it costs like a bomb to buy like a bottle of whiskey up there. <laughs> I'll keep people, that in mind. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So people, <laughs> and, and petrol too. So people drive across the border into Russia all the time to get vodka and gasoline, right? Wow. Meanwhile, Russians come into, uh, Kirkness, which is the big uh, town up there, to get diapers. For some reason, the <laughs> Russian economy can't make a decent diaper even <laughs> 30 years after communism, and they and they, and to get you know aircraft flights to go to the rest of Europe. So there's a lot of cross-border traffic. There's intelligence activity goes on. Um, there's cross-border movement. Uh, a few years ago, 5,000 Afghan and Middle Eastern refugees came across the border in basically one two-week period uh, in this one little crossing point up there in the Arctic, and it's like, How did they get there, you know? Well, they had help, you know, and a lot of what the Russians have been doing to the Europeans and to us and to others, I think um, you can see that happening on the ground up in in Norway. And, again, I always like to make it concrete so people can have a visual, right, and what are we actually talking about here. You can talk in sort of platitudes about the generic nature of it, but, um, you know, people, uh, you can lose people in that. So I try to be as concrete as I can. I'll just say I'm not one of these people who believes that, you know, President Trump was a Russian asset or that the Russians hacked the election. I, I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think there's ever been any good evidence for it. What there is good evidence for is the Russians manipulated our political polarization with a technique they call reflexive control as a way of getting us to shout at each other so they could do all the things they wanted to do in places like Syria and Africa and Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, and elsewhere. You know, so. I think it's worth bearing in mind that sometimes we're our own worst enemies when we make these guys out to be, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Um, The Russians, are they have some serious weaknesses um, and I think uh, that equally goes for the Chinese. Um, I didn't write about it very much. When I wrote the China chapter, I spent a bit of time out in New Guinea and out in the Pacific, uh, various places in Southeast Asia and Latin America and Africa, uh, and it's astounding how... Much the Chinese have expanded into that space, so we can talk about that if you want. But the the Russian stuff, um, I find fascinating. The Russians are a lot easier for us to understand than the Chinese are. I think a lot of us.
0: No, I think you're you're absolutely yeah. right on that point. And that that the few paragraphs that you have on uh, why there was Russian meddling in uh, an election, the distraction, all that stuff, the division that that caused, so they could do these other things. I mean, every single chat, every single paragraph in these are they're so good there's so much there's so much value in every single sentence here um but for the country as a whole to read those couple paragraphs that you have about that i think would be so therapeutic for people that are at each other's throats about this things because they read a, an uninformed you know tweet or an article that's meant to divide or manipulate um but I mean that that's everybody should read that for just that couple of those couple paragraphs it's so yeah so valuable it is it is
1: very sad what they've been able to do and I, I think you know I'm I'm happy to be an American, but I just got here, right? And I I don't really have an opinion on U.S. domestic politics. So I try to focus on what I what I know well. But even I, looking at that, can see like, hey, this is totally you know uh, exaggerated and polarized for political gain, and it isn't helping the country. It's actually making things you know a lot worse. Um, and it, interestingly, if you go to somewhere like Ukraine or even Norway or Finland, what you see is that this technique of pitting people against each other. Is a classic Russian technique, and they do it all over the place, right? It's not unique to the U.S., and you don't need, you know, a Russian asset in the White House. You just need, you know, they, they, that's completely unnecessary, right? And I, I always, you know, notice when everyone brings this up with Putin, he just laughs, right? He's not <laughs> laughing out of some kind of like, wah you know, right. Doctor Evil. He's laughing at the sheer naivete of thinking that you actually need to do that. You know, I mean, it's it's so easy to manipulate a modern democracy, uh, in, you know, just because of the way. We operate yeah, the way it is
0: structured, um, yeah,
1: but uh,
0: you know I, I, it's been a year since I read over a year since I read Dragons and snakes. Um, but uh, I didn't know about that norwegian I mean I knew about norwegian involvement with uh, special operations executive and all that sort of thing in world War II. That, that's fascinating, but I didn't know about the Russian side yeah. of it on the allied part like that was that was fast I, d- I had no idea that was that was in the yep. yeah
1: thousands of norwegians went to went to the Soviet Union, came back and invaded northern norway with the russian army in 1945 and for most of the cold war the norwegian government treated them like they were more or less criminals right i mean guys that were in the norwegian resistance against the nazis on the western side got medals and pensions and had movies made about them you know heroes the telemark yep Yep. um and meanwhile there's this whole other thing that went on up in the north and you know i've heard people say that you can still drive around up there and those people are the descendants will like flip you the bird if you're a Norwegian, because they got they got screwed over, yeah. Right? Um, and they're you know they're loyal Norwegians, right? But um, they were treated like you know a fifth column for most yep. of the Cold war. Now the Norwegian government, to its credit, um, remedied that you know after the Cold War. Okay, um, and it took, it but, took a while. Yeah. It took a while. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, that was fascinating. I hadn't studied that side of, of that. Now I'm always very uh, interested, so interested in, in special operations in general, and then that cold weather warfare side of it, particularly yeah. what happened uh, up there during World War that's II. A, that's
1: that's definitely a growth area, right? Yeah. I mean, you would have seen um, there's a lot of saber rattling going on in the mm. Arctic. Um, Russians have an incredibly um, aggressive approach to um, international waters and to the you know the the dominance of of particular parts of territory up there. The Chinese have now had themselves declared an Ar- a near Arctic power, which is kind of amusing because the closest they get to the Arctic is about roughly where Pittsburgh is, you know. <laughs> but they um they've had themselves declared that way. They've got uh, icebreakers and all kinds of stuff going on, and then you know my own home command, uh, Special Operations Command down in Australia. They they're starting to focus very heavily on the Antarctic threat. Um, and the fact that we, you know, I I think we've all been used to running around deserts and cities for the last 20 years. That's going to continue. You know, I wrote a whole book on on urban warfare. I think that's Mm -hmm. definitely going to be the way of the future, but we're going to have to master some, uh, let's call them special environments that we haven't had much to do with in the last 20 years. And one of those is definitely, um, Arctic and cold weather.
0: What, I think you just gave me my idea for, see, I'm writing book five now. I have book six already uh, outlined, so I know where it's going. I found that helps me that I'm not wasting bandwidth, worried about how I'm going to end one book and start another. So that's already done. But uh, yeah. I think you've just given me an idea for book uh, seven or eight. So I'm going to have to dive into that a little more uh, very, in depth.
1: Very Hemingway-esque of you, mate. You know, Hemingway had this thing about, you should never stop writing for the day two. You know what you're going to say next. There right?
0: we go. That's perfect. And yeah. it, it does help because oh. then I'm not worried. Yeah. I'm not wasting that bandwidth and tiring my. Myself out. Uh, But, uh, you know, talking about the domestic side of the house um, uh, a little bit here. So, in writing this novel about what the enemies learned by watching us, what are they incorporating into their future battle plans, all those things, uh, I got to about October, November of 2020, and I ran into a problem because I put myself in the enemy's shoes from August of 2019 when I first outlined the book, started doing all this web uh, research into bioweapons, got into January, February, read your book, kind of narrowed things down a little bit, continued that research and writing throughout the year. And as I'm finishing up in October, November, 2020, I realized, wow, if I was the enemy, I wouldn't do much right now. I would just kind of sit back and watch because we're doing a pretty good job of tearing ourselves apart from the inside out. And so right. I had to then figure out a way, in a fictional sense, to uh, to make it necessary for the enemy to strike now, which I which I did figure out, which is part of the fun of uh, of writing these things is you're aggressively yeah. solving problems on the written page the same way I would have on the battlefield. But if I mess right. it up on the written page, it's okay; no one's coming home in a in a body bag. But um, mm. but that was the problem I had. I got to that point and kind of red selling this from the outside. That's what I came up with.
1: Like, just watch for a little while
0: longer. Yeah, watch look, us find I mean,
1: inside. You do not need to assume that the Chinese or the Russians or any other, or the Iranians or any other extraneous actor owns or is manipulating some player in US politics, right? You just have to see that they're looking at us and just gently nudging, you know, both sides to get people to be more aggressive to each other and help to tear us down. And frankly, they've got a lot of um, assistance from elites, right, in the US. And one of my questions in my mind, and it's an open question, is whether a country can survive when its own elite seems to hate it, right? I was really struck by the meeting that just happened up in Alaska between um, our State Department and, and, uh, and the Chinese, where the Chinese launched this blistering attack on the US and every one of their talking points came out of the editorial pages of the New York Times, right? So like, what do you do when your own, leaders in your own sort of uh, quote-unquote elites, um, legacy media, let's say, mm-hmm. um, are pushing a narrative that's the same narrative that the adversary is. Well, you flip that around. The adversary doesn't need to make up their own stuff. They just replay what the New York Times is already saying, right, or CNN is already saying. And that's that's a technique. Again, it's it's a recognized information warfare technique developed by the Russians during the Cold War. It's not some nefarious, weird thing. It's, you know, you can read academic books on it that were written 20 years ago, um, so, you know, that's the that's thing I think we have to be worried about. The other thing I would just comment on um, with respect to 2020 is, you know, as you guys know, uh, and I'm sure you've talked about it with others on the podcast, there's been a debate about the origins of COVID. Um, I do not have any more knowledge than anyone else does, but certainly looking at it sort of a Bayesian, you know, best fit of all the data that we have available, I've always felt like the best fit, Theory was an accidental leak from a lab, right? Um, I don't at all discount the sort of, you know, what they call zoonotic origin, you know, animal origin, but um, certainly there's elements about it that suggest to me that it might have been an accidental lab leak. I'm not one of those guys who thinks it was a deliberate Chinese bioweapon, right? But having said that, China's got one of the most active biowarfare programs on the planet. They have actively engaged in human performance enhancement with a variety of. Um, military objectives. Uh, the first major military group they sent to Wuhan after the outbreak of the flu was there, was from their bio warfare Command. And look at what's happened over the last, you know, 12 months. USS um, Eisenhower was essentially out of action for about six weeks. Anderson Air Force Base on Guam was massively disrupted for a couple of months. Uh, the French aircraft carrier, the Charles de Gaulle, got knocked out of action for a couple of months as well. Um, The effect of that virus on not just the Western economy, but on particularly maritime and air assets had a huge impact. And I would just suggest that if the Chinese biowarfare guys are not currently right now studying this and saying, hey, if that's what we could achieve with an accidental release of a non-weaponized pathogen, imagine what we could do with a deliberate release of something that was tailored for particular effect then they're guilty of military malpractice if they're not doing that, right? So I think the next time this happens, um, you know, we're going to be dealing with adversaries who have learned a lot, not just about masks and, you know, vaccination and lockdowns, but about how to weaponize stuff in a way that generates the most disruptive effect on already polarized um, Western societies. So, you know, this is a, if it wasn't in the repertoire of our adversaries a year ago, it absolutely is now. And I think it's something to be thinking about very hard um as we go forward.
0: Oh absolutely that's uh as I was writing this book with the basis being what the enemy has learned by watching us on the field of battle well I start writing this and then covid hits. So being in the enemy's shoes I have to go okay what are they learning from our response to covid. So that makes its yeah. way into the novel. Then we hit a summer of civil unrest. Once again, they're not just looking at that and with passing interest, seeing it on a headline and then going on to their next thing. They're learning from that. And then we have a very contentious political season, an election cycle. Of course, they're learning from that. So as I'm writing, this novel becomes, I had no idea in 2019 when I outlined it, that 2020 was going to be such a pivotal year in the history of this country and the world. But the enemy was learning from those things. And it just became yeah. natural for me to weave those in to the storyline and when, and in researching the bioweapons side of the house, I had no touch points with that while I was in the military, but in doing this research in academic journals and in just chapters and books here and there, interviews with people. um, And the interviews was fascinating because it's the first time that I think I did what maybe a journalist would do in talking to one source and then they leave out something because they don't want to tell you everything. But then you talk to somebody else that does a similar thing. They leave something out, but it's what the other guy put in. So then you get to weave right. this thing together and put these puzzle pieces together, which is what I did for the, for the novel here. But, uh, but the enemy is certainly learning by watching us over this last year and Absolutely. Uh, incorporating these um, lessons into their battle plan. And,
1: and, you know, I, I will just say it's, it's a feature of American political discourse and the way we like to think about ourselves that we, we, we think we were just uniquely sucky, right, at dealing with COVID. Um, you know, we we were terrible. Our response was horrible. Actually, if you look at it, US was in the middle of the pack. Um, European nations did really badly. Uh, a lot of places in Africa and, and South America and, and Southeast Asia have really struggled. A few notable countries, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong initially, but not lately, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand have done well on a health standpoint. But everyone screwed up something. Everyone suffered, and I think we we can sort of be a little bit narcissistic sometimes and say, "Well, you know, we're just we're just uniquely bad," and it's just not true, right? Um, and I think we need to sort of give ourselves a bit of credit sometimes that uh, you know perhaps the U.S. is 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 not as uh, as evil and satanic and systemically bad as people tend
0: to think it is. Yeah, no, I agree and then forgiveness is a very powerful tool uh, as well and uh yeah. no matter what you're dealing with whether it's personal or or professional. Um totally. but uh I mean I'm with you on the the accidental release I, back in I was on Joe Rogan's podcast where I mentioned your book by the way in uh in April of last year when the last novel okay. came out. Nice. Um, do that, absolutely, man. of course, my goodness. Uh, it's everything's been so so impactful, but we talked about that and I said that yeah, if you were a a detective and uh, in any country in the world, and you had something happen, uh, let's say a, a virus escapes in a general vicinity of a lab that does similar type research, we would want, we'd call that a clue. And you'd want to maybe ask a few questions, maybe look yeah, get into it. that, that sort of thing. I mean, that's, uh, you know, and there is precedent, of course, for uh, for labs having unintentional leaks in the mm-hmm. former Soviet Union, uh, in our country. Um, yeah, and
1: and all, happens and, all the time. Yeah. And it's re- recognized as having happened dozens of times from from Chinese labs, yep. right? And uh, people may not be catching up, may, may not be keeping up with the Chinese sort of propaganda narrative. But um, they are no longer saying that it was an accidental, you know, animal-based wet market thing that was their original story. Now they're saying it isn't even Chinese; it came from outside. There's one story that they're pushing that says it came in frozen food from Europe to China, right? Just stuff that's just, just not in any way believable. Um, and you know, right now the Chinese are massively smacking the Aussies with all this incredible um, bullying behaviour on the economic front because Canberra had the temerity that literally asked the question, hey, we would like to have an independent investigation into the origin of the the Wuhan flu. So, you know, when you're reacting that way to someone literally just asking the question, it tends to signal that you've got something to hide, you know. So, you know, I'd be more than happy to discount the Accidental lab leak, if they would allow us to investigate and identify what really did happen. Right. Um, So, you know, I mean, it's in common with many other things. People that try to stifle debate and prevent anyone from even asking the question, they don't shut down people's doubts. They just make themselves look insecure. And that can long term, you know, undermine their credibility. And I think that's what's happened to China. I mean, you know, international perceptions of the Chinese have created in the last 12 months. Uh, in large part because of this, right, which they inflicted on on the world. I mean, at the same time that China had shut down internal travel from Wuhan to everywhere else in China, they were still encouraging travellers to come into China and leave China to go to the United States and elsewhere. Uh, It was breathtakingly irresponsible behaviour, right, even if it wasn't a uh, deliberate leak. So, you know, I think there's, let's just say there's questions to answer, right, Uh, and until people are held accountable, what I worry about is next time around we won't have learned the lessons we need to protect ourselves when we get a flu that could be much more dangerous than than this one.
0: Oh, yeah, that's what we mean that's what we owe it at yeah. the tactical level to pass on lessons to the the next group coming in or to the military yeah. as a whole and at the strategic level that's what our leaders also owe us is making the best decisions possible at that strategic level like you talk about understanding the nature of the conflict in which you're engaged well our senior yep. level leaders uh at the initial at the outset after 9 11 and when we entered Iraq they didn't do that they didn't put that I mean maybe they put the time in but they certainly t- didn't take the lessons and apply those lessons moving forward as wisdom they missed that so yeah. um in this case we have an opportunity we've had a full Year to look back on and to uh, uh, to look at data, to look at the decisions that were made, to see the outcomes of those decisions, and then to apply that going forward. That knowledge going forward is wisdom. So I hope that we can do that. Yeah, and in, I hope we can. You
1: know, and take and you know take the domestic partisan politics out of it and be just like, you know, look, yeah, we all have different political points of view, but let's figure out what really did happen. You know, which. You know, I I have the quaint, old-fashioned belief that there is such a thing as objective truth, right? And we need to try and figure that out. And you know, truth is whatever. To quote Philip K. Dick, right? Another great author. Um, The reality is that, with which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. That's right. Um, So it doesn't really matter whether you uh, whether you believe a particular narrative or another. It's you know, there's real facts, and they're going to bite you in the ass if you if you don't take cognizance of them. Yeah,
0: and going back to the frozen food coming into Wuhan, that sort of thing. It is. So yeah. much, and I don't say easier is the wrong word. It's always, I never, I try to avoid saying easier, but there are so many more options today when you're trying to manipulate a populace than there was, were in, say, 1955, 1965, mm-hmm. 1975. Um, although over time, there have become more and more ways to do it. Let's say in 1955, if you're trying to influence somebody, well, maybe you black you have blackmail on a reporter at the uh, at the New York Times, or you pay mm-hmm. a reporter at the New York Times to put out a story that is, uh, says what you want it to say. Well, now with the this connectivity that we have with all these different platforms and ways to communicate, uh, influencers who don't do their research, that don't put the time, energy, and effort into the study of history, uh, they... It's a lot easier to manipulate a populace today uh so i think yeah. if you understand that and if you take a breath as a citizen and realize that uh that that's out there that the, that those forces are at play and you are probably being manipulated uh today because there are so many more ways to do it than there were 30 40 50 years ago um the manipulation's still at work but there are more ways to reach you almost continuously
1: all day, every day if you're connected. Yeah. Um, so it's a, you know. One of the sources I quoted in my my book described it as a fire hose of falsehood, right? Wow. Just this continuous stream of bullshit that you get from um, all sides. And it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a trained intelligence officer and I, I still have trouble figuring out how to, you know, how to grade different sources in terms of you know access placement, accuracy you know, intent to manipulate, all those kinds of thing, things. And, you know, I would love to live in a world where you didn't have to apply analytical tradecraft to the mass media, but unfortunately, that's not the world we live in, right? You do have to sift through this stuff. And, you know, I, I often, because um, I do a lot of work in places like Africa and, and and Latin America, I have personal firsthand knowledge from stuff on the ground. And I often find when I'm reading, you know, the mainstream media, you uh, the bits that i know well i'll be like yeah that ain't right and that's not true and that isn't correct and then when i go to the next thing i'm like well how do i know that they are any more accurate on this other stuff than on the stuff that i know where i know they're not accurate trust it's Um,
0: all about that that trust and right now we have have very little trust in our media and i think uh i mean I think it, either it's Pew Research polling or it's uh, Rand Corporation studies, but uh, I think trust in the United States government was at an all-time high right around 1962, 63, somewhere in somewhere in there. It went to an yeah. all-time low, although I haven't checked recently. Um, right around 1979, 80, right, right about that that time in the Carter yeah. administration. Uh, I would well, venture, I, apart from now, right? Yeah, I think exactly. It's I would venture government. that today we're probably in that yeah. same area as far as trust in government, trust yeah, in our institutions, cool. trust in our media.
1: I think think we've actually gotten to a place where there's been this kind of collapse of confidence in elites and experts and institutions of all kinds. And look, mate, I mean, you and I are not not guiltless here, right, because part of this is the military because we've spent 20 years chasing little non-state actors around Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and, you know, all these other places, and the mass media and so-called experts keep on telling the American people We've got the best military that has ever existed. There's never been anything like it, best military in history. Uh, and at the same time, they can see with their own eyes that we just can't close the deal, right, yeah. in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. And at some point, people start to go, hey, you so-called experts, you're all full of shit. Right. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, it's part of a bigger pattern, right? It applies to every aspect of society, but I, I think we have our part in that too, and that's why we've got to be upfront about what we know, what we don't know, you know. Um, because I think that you, there's only so much more of this that we can take before society really starts to come apart at the Sims.
0: Oh yeah. No, at the tactical level, like we're pretty good at kicking in those doors. We're pretty good at that level, but, uh, well, when we're I talking done, about, we're talking about something yeah. besides that. And you have a great chapter in here, um, where you reference, uh, uh rise first, rise and kill first. Um, and yeah. uh, which is uh, Vernon Bergman, uh, yeah. great, great journalist, yeah. yeah, really good, amazing book. Yeah. And he yeah, had the secret war with Iran, is another one of his his books. Uh, I used both of those in research for my last novel as well, but uh. You reference him in that exact context, as far as how what the Israelis did, particularly in the in the eighties um, and up through like two thousand two, and seeing how uh, how their their tactical level uh, pursuit and target assassination program yeah it took a lot of people off the battlefield, very successful. But yeah. the enemy, in turn, now we're having more attacks because everything speeds up. That process speeds up. So, is that successful strategically? So we have yeah. that same problem in our country.
1: Totally, and you know, in that part of the book where I talk about the uh, sort of adaptive adaptation of uh, evolution of of, um, Hezbollah and the Palestinian groups. I also quote this great documentary, which if people have an opportunity to watch it, I strongly recommend It's called The Gatekeepers. Uh, And basically a a couple of Israeli filmmakers uh, interviewed all the surviving heads of the Shin Bet, which is Israel's internal uh, security service. And one of them, who I quote in the book, said, Look, we were, we were killing all these guys, but it was point specific. It was all tactics, no strategy, right? And I think you could apply the same uh, lessons to us. I, I would just say that at the military level, sort of military instrument of power, as we say in the business, really the US is, is unparalleled, right? I mean, I, I have been you know, counting seven or eight um, counterinsurgency or irregular warfare campaigns that I've personally fought in. I've worked with 17 different militaries. I've never seen a military that's better at the tactical level at defeating an irregular adversary than the US military. The problem is not that, that the military can't defeat the adversary. The problem is that the nation can't take that military success and then translate it into a piece that serves our, de- uh, our objectives, right? So it's like, we just can't close the deal. You think about Afghanistan, we've repeatedly defeated the Taliban in battle probably four or five times, right? The guys we're fighting today in Afghanistan are sons of or younger brothers of guys that we killed 10 years ago or 15 years ago. We're, we're in the sort of Taliban 5.0 at this point. Every time we defeat them on the battlefield, they recuperate and we just can't seem to politically and diplomatically come up with a solution. So, frankly, the military's done a great job in re- re- reforming itself and trying to improve, but if the problem's not a fundamentally military problem, well, that's not going to help us, right? And I think the problem really lies in us as a nation and the way we think about war and the way that so few of our leaders have any direct experience of it. Um, you know, there's great Congress people like Mark Waltz or Alyssa Slotkin who have you know combat experience in Afghanistan and Iraq or served in the CIA, as elicited. But they're a rare exception, right? And the majority of these people are you know octogenarians who managed to avoid any form of military service in their very long lives and that it's all theory to them, you know, and it, it is not theory to our adversaries. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah. I'm snatching that defeat from the jaws of victory again. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. And so I want to be cognizant of your time. Cause I, I, so I didn't get to one of my questions. I wrote down a bunch. I didn't get to one of them. So, so we're gonna to have to do this uh, again at some point. And now I want to talk about Mumbai. I want to talk about a, a whole bunch of, of different things, but uh, because we did touch on China, I love when you talk about in uh, in the book, your most recent book, when you're sitting at the Hotel del Coronado having a cocktail. And because I thought all from before, I even well my first day stepping on the quarterdeck at seal team five um, was I looked up and the hotel del is a little farther down, but right there when you look up uh, from the grinder for this very open area uh, where you lay out all your gear, get ready to go on deployment or training trips, you look up and you see these things called the shores, which are, I think mm-hmm. they were built in the seventies. It looks like 1970 style architecture, kind of an eyesore, yeah. but these very tall buildings right on the waterfront that look guess where directly down at Warcom, So the command that controls all the, uh, the, the seals, and then SEAL team five, SEAL team three, SEAL team one. Uh, and I always thought, I would I bet China's up there, I bet Russia is up there. Somebody's renting out some of these floors mm-hmm. up there that have some sophisticated listening devices and they're pointing right down here at this compound. Um yeah. you can catch so much just across oh. crosstalk walking across the
1: the compound. Totally. And you and you know, you sit, you sit there at the Hotel Dell. You sit there at the Hotel Dell, you're in one of the most dense concentrations of naval power anywhere on the planet. I just sketch out just a tiny you know, unclassified portion of what that is in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who read the book said to me, well, okay, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because the Chinese have satellites, they've got um, aircraft and they've got the ability to do this stuff remotely without having to put somebody on the ground. My response to that was twofold. One, sometimes you just have to have a person on the spot, right? That's why we still have a CIA, even after we have all this other uh, stuff, and sometimes there's just no substitute for actually being there. But the other thing to be aware of is space warfare. Right. And it doesn't make any sense to create a ground listing post when you've got space assets, unless you're planning to knock those space assets out. Right. And what we see now is the Chinese and the Russians talking about building a joint permanent moon base by 2027. We've got China building a rival platform to the International Space Station. Last September, China put the final uh, touches to the Beidou system, which is their equivalent to GPS, which mm-hmm. now goes globally. Uh, and you know, both China and Russia have weaponized space to the point where, you know, people perhaps don't realise just quite how much modern civil society and economies depend on GPS. And at some point, if you can turn that off, um, you, you know, you can massively disrupt not only the US military but basically every aspect of modern society in most of the West. Of course, if they do that to us, we are going to retaliate to them in space. They've clearly thought ahead of that, and they're starting to build ground assets to enable them to still function even in the event of of space being knocked out. It's it's really important to kind of think outside the box of that modern, let's call it the Apple family of, of, you know, devices that everyone walks around with to realize that, like, that stuff's a hell of a lot easier to put an end to than we like to think.
0: You know? Oh, yeah. And all anybody has to do to figure out how important GPS is towards to our daily lives is to try to get somewhere, give someone directions somewhere without sending them a, a Google map or an Apple map uh, link. Um, yeah. Totally. It's, uh...
1: <laughs> I, I just got done running a resistance warfare course for a bunch of US government folks. And uh, one of the hardest things, hardest of all the things that people have to do in that environment is figure out, again, how to navigate Without some electronic device that's continually pinging their location, and you know, with a, with a, a components made in China, uh-huh. you know, you're driving around with, um, and the ability to like dump your electronics and still function in an off the grid manner, uh, that's hard for us. But it's second nature to most of the guys we're fighting. You know, so I think part of it is that old school element. You know, having like two or three really important bits of gear that you know you can rely on, that are going to be there when the time when the chips are down. You can trust, you know, uh, and, and trying to, I always say more skill, less equipment, you know? Um, and if you have the better skills, you can do more with less, but we've become very kind of, um, you know, prisoners of our own gadgets at some level, well, I think.
0: Big time, uh, not just on in yeah. the, in the intelligence side of the house or the special operations side of the house, but it's just as citizens in general, uh, yeah. Yeah. as far as being self-reliant and, uh, and responsible and, and all those other things. Um so I know I've kept you longer than, than, uh, than we said, and I sincerely appreciate you taking time to do this. And once again, I did not get to any of my questions here. Uh, but I want, so I want to do this again when you have time, but, uh, before we go, um, I want to, I was thinking of as I was, uh, I was zipping back through these, these novels or these books here. And I was just thinking about uh, having seen you for a while and thinking about everything that has happened since we last met up. Um, I was looking for a little hope because when I am uh, looking at our our, our, uh, domestic situation here in the United States. I'm looking at COVID. I'm looking at civil unrest. I'm looking at these, uh, what seemed to be from the, if you were the enemy looking in almost irreconcilable political differences. Um, when we talk about empires, um, and I like the, the, uh, how you framed this, and this is why I ask it in terms of hope because you, because you do talk about it in ter- almost in terms of hope in the in the novel. Um, when we talk about the decline of an empire, and we talk about a, uh, I think you call it, call it a culminating point, um, maybe Iraq March two thousand three. Um, yeah. We look back at that as that was the the culminating point where we started our decline as an empire as a military. Um, when you look at all all this, and having put the time you have in it, have on the ground, everything that you've seen, everything that you have studied, uh, everything that you have have written, and then seen politicians maybe squander, perhaps um, what do you, what gives you hope going forward? Uh, when you look at, at this nation of uh, which you are now a, a citizen, um, are we on the decline as an empire, or is there is there hope out there where we can continue to go forward and get stronger as a nation?
1: Well, it's kind of both, right? I mean, I think um, if if you want to preserve the American quote-unquote empire as it existed in the middle of the 1990s, you know, when the US was, to use Madeleine Albright's term, you know, the indispensable nation, um, and you think that we're going to be the sort of global hegemon, you know, to use that term, uh, forever, then I, I have bad news for you, right? We are not going to probably ever get back to where we were in the 1990s and I do think we're in a multipolar environment where we have um, real serious peer rivals who are, you know, um, posing a much greater threat than anything you and I dealt with during our, our active military careers. So I think, you know, if 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 you want to hope that we're going to get back to that, you know, um, Clintonian era, it's not going to happen, right? But I would offer a different kind of hope, which is um, people still – people. People believe in freedom. People believe in free enterprise, in free speech, in, you know, family, in traditional values. And you can only push people so far before you get people calling bullshit on that and saying, no, you know, I'm I'm not prepared to uh, walk around in, you know, sackcloth and ashes and just decide that my day is done and America is, a, you know, is busted. Uh, and I think we're already seeing that pushback. We're also seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it elsewhere. Um, I also think people are realizing that a lot of the racial stuff and the class stuff that's going on is people deliberately trying to set Americans of different skin colors and of different social classes against each other. And rather than being manipulated into fighting each other, we need to step back and go, hey, we're not the other Americans we're talking about are not the enemy. you know And I, I, I hear people saying that. Um, I believe you know that there is hope in, in that sense. And I guess this is a slightly dark point of view, but who wants to live in a world where every problem is solved, right? I mean, it, it, that's just the definition of boring, as far, <laughs> far as I'm concerned. Right? Yeah, we'll and, never get you know, there. But you know, why did why did humans rise from you know the savannah of Africa two hundred and seventy thousand years ago to be where we are now? It was facing challenges, right, lethal challenges. And you know, I had to break it. You know, you know better than anyone. We're all going to die, right, at some point, and. It's how you go, right? And it's how you face the challenges that that makes a difference. And I think ultimately, you know, a life well lived is what matters most. And I think all those opportunities are still out there, regardless of what's happening, you know, inside the Beltway or on CNN or at Nike, you know, there's, there's, a, um, there's a real world out there with plenty of challenges. And I think that getting, you know, engaged in that is, is, uh, is the way to, you know, unlock that hope.
0: I love it. I love it. I think we'll leave it at that because I've kept you longer than I than I said I would. And uh no worries, man. Man, I sincerely appreciate you doing this. Um, and I know you're not on the social channels. You are you are very wisely these days, I think. Uh, you're on Twitter for like a second or two, years and years uh, I ago. I have a
1: Twitter account. I have a Twitter account. I never use yeah. it. I um I just don't have time, man. I I mean, it. You know better than anyone. I just totally suck at email, right? <laughs> I'm I'm that bad at even responding to emails. <laughs> I, you know. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't write books and do field work and run a, you know, run a company and all that. If I was also on Twitter. Or yep. the
0: I get it. Yeah. I get so it. it. So it's, yeah. a, that's a loss for the rest of us, but very wise decision yeah. on your, on your part. Um, but uh, yeah. these, uh, these books right here, absolutely fantastic. Uh, can't recommend them highly enough to everybody. I'd say, you know, usually I would tell people to go in order, but, uh, but because of uh, the dragons and the snakes and just how timely this is and what was to me when I, when I read it last year, um, you know, I'd say people jump in with this one, then, then go through, then go through the rest. Um, yeah. The other book that I think
1: um, people might like is is called Blood Year and it's about the rise of ISIS. Yep. Right here. And it's a bit less, bit less academic, a bit more of a narrative. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right there. So my, my Oxford University Press appreciates you. Yeah. There we go. <laughs>
0: yeah. That one right there. I want to talk to you about this one uh, for sure. Next time around. Yeah. Uh...
1: yeah. Well, let's do it again, man. I'm, I'm sure that uh, stuff is going to, happen that'll yep. bring things up we can talk about that
0: one right um, there yeah 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 and uh, yeah i want to go through all these with you but uh, uh hopefully we'll see each other in person before too long and it's always hard to keep track of you because you're always zipping around the world and i'll get some sort of a uh, a, a text on a a different type of platform and you'll uh, be somewhere you know in some jungle in some desert in some urban environment that doesn't seem too safe to me and uh and hopefully we'll link up here and be able to grab some some drinks soon
1: and then we'll, we'll do it over a Colorado burger
0: at some point. Welcome to the gear highlights section of the Danger Close podcast. And because I had my friend, Dr. David Kocullen on this podcast, I wanted to talk about his books a little bit more. Uh, I talked about them quite a bit during the podcast, but everybody, every student of warfare needs to have these books not just in their library, but they need to be read. They need to be highlighted. They need to be revisited. Uh, I can't stress that enough. And if you're not signed up for my reading list selections, every month I have a reading list selection that comes out. You can sign up for my newsletter on the blog, uh, blog section of my website there. And each month I take six. And some of those are books that come from the professional reading list that I was asked to put together for the Naval Special Warfare Center before I left the SEAL teams. And others are books that influenced me on some way along my journey. And I'll tell you what, these books have all influenced, not just me, but an entire generation of combat leaders. Uh, And David Kocullen is the main driving force behind that impact and that influence. So um, get these books, can't recommend them enough. The Dragons and the Snakes, when I sat down to write... The Devil's Hand, uh, I jumped right in to this book, and this really helped focus me uh, along the path as I was putting that book together, as I was putting myself in the enemy's shoes, looking back on particularly the last 20 years and what they've learned by watching us on the field of battle for those last 20 years. So uh, David Kilcullen does that in this book uh, at a strategic and tactical level uh, for those who uh, are interested, which should be everybody, because going forward, uh, we ha- we have some challenges ahead as we discuss in the podcast. So the dragons and the snakes definitely pick this up. Usually I tell people to start at the beginning with accidental gorilla, but I think jump in with this one because it is so timely. So the dragons and the snakes and for sure pick up counterinsurgency. And, uh, this one right here goes into the background behind the 28 articles of counterinsurgency, which we talked about on the podcast. So once again, uh, required reading for students of war blood year for sure. You can see all these I have. I don't even know why I highlight them because the whole book ends up being highlighted. So blood year out of the mountains. Uh, I'm actually quoted in here, uh, which was such an honor for me. And we're going to talk about each and every one of these books, I hope in separate podcasts going forward, because there's so much uh, to talk about and the accidental gorilla right here. So amazing work, David, thank you so much for writing these. Uh, and on the podcast, we talk about a couple other books, uh, rise and kill first, which, uh, if you've been following along, you know, influenced me as I wrote the devil's hand. So as you can tell those yellow stickies again, uh, this is another book that ended up getting quite a few highlights here. So, uh, absolutely fantastic. We talked about the counterinsurgency field manual, his involvement, uh, with this. Um, so also, uh, although some parts of it may be, well, things have evolved quite a bit because the enemy, as we talked about on the podcast is always adapting. We're always ad- adapting to the enemy. They're always adapting to us. So, uh, this should be in everyone's library as well. And what I didn't get to ask David about, uh, cause I didn't get to any of my questions, uh, cause we just started talking is unrestricted warfare here. And this one really is a, um, well, it, I think it's a paper that was written by two Chinese military officers. Uh, I think around 1999. I might be wrong with that date, 98, 99, somewhere. But in the U.S., it says 2002 right here, but it was written earlier than that. But uh, I want to talk to him about this, about how uh, this was interpreted in the United States and uh, some of the uh, it's, it's some things we can learn from this. So we'll talk about that next time. And when David was talking about how he created those 28 articles of counterinsurgency. Well, he was at the Starbucks in the Pentagon and it happened because somebody had another meeting they couldn't, uh, couldn't make it to, to meet him. So he took out his black moleskin notebook and he wrote those down. So a notebook, just like this one. So I always have a notebook with me, no matter where I go, always writing down those notes, those ideas, uh, usually as they pertain to future novels these days. Um, and, but I've graduated from this size to this size, this one from Sig, Thank you, Sig. But I love this. So each and every book gets its own notebook like this. So I have one for, uh, for each of the novels thus far. And this one is going to be for this fifth novel that I'm writing. I have all sorts of notes in here. And very cool. This pen right here, Kelly Slayton. So he's at Kelly Slayton on Instagram and at Palmetto Patriot Flags. Um, but this pen, awesome. Thank you for making this pen. It means a lot to me. And uh, this is the one that's going to take a ton of notes here as I get deeper and deeper into uh, writing and the edits for book five, title classified. So sincerely appreciate that. Thank you so much. And in these novels, or not novels, these books here, um, obviously Osama bin Laden is mentioned. Al Qaeda is mentioned. There's um, a lot of information about uh, uh, that, that terrorist organization and uh, how it's evolved from, I think their first meeting was, I think in 1988, uh, you can fact check me on that, but um, so much has happened over the years, obviously, but this right here, this is from my friend, James Yeager, and this is the original wanted poster for Osama bin Laden. You can see the U right there, because you see that he's called UBL when you're talking about, him, not OBL, so this is the, the U spelling right there, wanted by the FBI, murder of U S nationals outside of the United States conspiracy to murder U S nationals outside the United States attack on a federal facility resulting in death. And the date on this thing is March 29th, 1999. So uh, James Yeager at tactical response. Thank you so much for sending this. Um, That means a lot to me that you'd send this to me. Uh, Sincerely appreciate it, my friend. So there we go. I think that's everything. All right. Get reading. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad Original, presented by Six Hour. For more on David Kilcullen, you can pick up his books wherever books are sold. The Dragons and the Snakes, Counterinsurgency, Blood Year, Out of the Mountains, and The Accidental Gorilla. And I'll have to have him back on the podcast soon because he is such a treasure trove of information and knowledge, but more importantly, of wisdom. And if you enjoyed the podcast, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you watch your podcasts, on Apple, Spotify, or on YouTube. And I'll see you next time on Danger Close. In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original. Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? What are you... What box do you fit in? Which exactly. box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy, enemy. or... Right. Right. No. How, like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.